0: And now we turn our attention to trade and finance. Earlier this month, a dozen countries along the Pacific Rim concluded a complex trade agreement dubbed the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the TPP. Negotiations for the trade deal took more than seven years and were mostly carried out in secret. The agreement includes the United States, Canada, and three countries in Latin America, Mexico, Peru, and Chile. President Barack Obama now must get the agreement approved through Congress if the U.S. is to participate. The president won fast-track approval for that process this summer, but now the issue is caught up in the U.S. presidential race, with former Secretary of State and Senator Hillary Clinton opposing the trade deal and her main challenger, Senator Bernie Sanders, also in opposition. We asked Chris Sabatini to analyze the trade agreement and the politics surrounding it. Sabatini is with Columbia University And he's the editor of the website, Latin America Goes Global. He joined us via Skype from New York City.
1: Hillary Clinton has come out against it. Bernie Sanders is dead set against it. Um, He got a little tripped up even when he was talking about when during the negotiations, because the negotiations were relatively secret. People really couldn't see the content of the deal. Um, this is obviously a tactic that the president is using in negotiators to avoid the nitpicking and all the sort of echo chamber that can happen around, you know, a deal of this nature. And this is huge. I mean, it's, it's 12 countries, um, you know, all along the Pacific Rim, uh, South Korea, Vietnam, Australia, New Zealand, Peru, Chile, Mexico, the U.S., to name a few, representing 40 percent of the world's GDP. Um, it is huge. And. Um, And it's also important for geostrategic reasons, which I'll talk about in a second. But so clearly the the, the Obama administration tried to play it very close to the vest in the negotiations. And I think, you know, I understand why they did that. But I think it hurt them in certain ways because it allowed labor groups and others to sort of engage in a whispering campaign that there are all sorts of insidious, uh, uh, potentially insidious chapters and clauses in there that were going to hurt labor rights. So now what he's got to go out? out and do is, is sell it. I think he's, you know, he's gotten it, uh, negotiated. Um, there are some, I, I, no one's really looked at it chapter and verse, uh, but according to what we've heard, there are some real advancements in terms of upgrading, um, labor rights, uh, and labor, uh, the capacity to to arbitrate uh, disputes over labor, um, also uh, upgrading environmental laws. In many ways, it is very much a sort of a modern uh, trade agreement in ways that say NAFTA was not. But I think that's very positive. But we really don't know all the details yet. So you know, in the meantime, he's going to have to confront you know Republicans who don't want to hand him a victory. Um, they are loath to do this, irrespective of the potential benefits, and his own Democratic Party that is. Heading into election year, and is also uh, very distrustful, and needs the AFL-CIO, the unions, to be able to back those candidates, uh, both Senate, House of Representatives, as well as a presidential candidate. And his, and you know, wh- the person who hopes to be Obama's heir apparent, Hillary Clinton, has already come out against it. So it's going to be a very tough slog for him. Um, I, I, if I were a betting man, and, and luckily for my family, I'm not. I would be saying I think I don't think it's going to get passed this year because I just think in election year it's going to be difficult. Um, and, and Hillary's already, you know, what I suspect the Democrats will do, will sort of squeeze out some concessions and eventually sort of in a, in a Democratic administration pass it or a Republican administration, it will be easier to get the Republicans to line up.
0: So we're going to wait for the next president to get this done. It's premature for us to be having this chat.
1: <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't I wouldn't put this on your shelf, Rick, and wait for a couple of years. I'd like to hear my voice on the radio and on your podcast as soon as possible. So I, I, I discourage that. But I do think um, it's going to be very, very difficult. Um, I, I think he's committed to doing it. I think he will try. But I do think the political clock is, is ticking against him right now in the short term.
0: You raised the specter of the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, and that's what I've heard... Bernie Sanders compare this Trans Pacific Partnership to. And many people criticize that for the reasons that you have pointed out that it didn't seem to be equitable to labor. And there have been various studies that have said that it exacerbated inequities in this country afterward, that it was not a good deal for Mexico, in that it, it hurt small farmers in Mexico. And we could go on about the problems that it did not address environmental needs. Um, And so there are many fears about that happening with this, too.
1: Yeah, I think this isn't NAFTA. First of all, NAFTA is somewhat flawed in the sense that it was a stripped down, bare bones free trade agreement. They didn't go for any more, any discussions on labor and environment were sort of side issues, side agreements. Um, What has happened since then has been there's an evolution of free trade agreements because of sort of what groups learned about NAFTA, whether it's Central America Free Trade Agreement, CAFTA-DR with the Dominican Republic, in which there were requirements that basically the, the partners in Central America upgrade or improve their labor laws, protect labor rights. Um, the AFL-CIO has actually been bringing cases before the tribunals to arbitrate cases of labor rights. That, you know, the point in that being, if you will, lifting the floor a, a little bit, and then you get to the uh, peru, chile peru uh, in particular, Columbia agreements in which there are really uh, serious improvements in terms of uh, the requirements for countries to upgrade labor laws, the requirements for countries to upgrade labor courts, and also environmental legislation. So you know, free trade will there will always be winners and losers in free trade. And yes, I imagine uh, a number of companies given the opportunity to have you know, basically tariff-free access to US market. Um, will go to where labor is cheaper, um, just because the living is st- standard of living is cheaper. Question is, and that's sort of the nature. And, and, and do you think you know, this will also benefit sort of higher end businesses and services and financial services, in particular, in the United States? And there will there is certainly a risk that some jobs will head overseas because cost of living is lower in say Vietnam, um, in say Peru. And now uh, many of these countries, particularly Vietnam, will now be able to uh, export their products tariff-free to the United States. And I think businesses will look for cheaper labor. But that doesn't mean that labor will be exploited.
0: So you mentioned um, Peru, Chile, Mexico are all part of this particular agreement. Is this going to be good for them? Or are we going to also see a NAFTA effect on their agricultural industries or other industries
1: it's a good question uh, you know it, it's difficult again to untangle all of the causes and effects and free trade is is always difficult you cannot attribute directly job loss for example to, to specific free trade agreements because there's always going to be a job churn and things you know it, it, things are difficult to, to understand. There are a number of benefits and challenges. The first on the benefits is what this does, uh, because all of these com- countries and, and have a number of free trade agreements with other member countries, whether it's Chile with Vietnam or with Australia, Mexico obviously with the United States. What this will do is harmonize those trade agreements so that the total is greater than the sum of their parts. So that you can you create a larger market rather than what people refer to as a spaghetti bowl of just individual bilateral trade relations. That will also create um, opportunities for um, uh, value chain development across countries um, that do, don't exist now. So you conceivably you know, buy the copper from Chile and send it to Australia to be made into something else, and send it to Mexico and then ship to the United States. Um, you don't have that problem of rules of origin that only are limited to one country to another country's market. Um, there are also obviously opportunities of scale in terms of financing and investment. Um, all those are very positive. I think the challenge um, is going to be can some of these countries compete in, in ways that can actually um, improve their domestic industry? Because there is a risk, again, just with, as in with the United States. Some of these countries um, and their companies that invest there are going to be looking for lower labor. I think the real, the real risk here and a real loser could be, to be honest, is Central America. Central America is a uh, really sort of a textile hub for the United States. It is not part of uh, the TPP. And so whether it's Honduras or, or Guatemala that have benefited from tariff-free access for their textiles or shoe wear what have you, Um, are now going to face direct competition from Vietnam, which has lower, obviously Central America has lower um, transportation costs, but countries like Vietnam, South Korea, uh, Brunei, and others are going to, really. Malaysia, are really going to be going, and and Central America is unfortunately not part of the deal. Again, I think the geostrategic component is important. Um, This is a defining moment. People talk about, put it in the context of Latin America, the sort of loss of U.S. Uh, influence in the region. Some of it, I think, is imagined. Uh, I don't think it's real. But the—but um, you know, what the U.S. is trying to do for the first time in a long time is actually create, a, if you will, sort of a positive pull or trend in the region um, that it can offer up. And as we look at countries that haven't engaged in the sorts of economic opening and responsible macroeconomic reforms that Chile and Peru have, which will contract, which will not suffer the level of economic contraction of a Brazil or an Argentina or Venezuela in the next couple of years. Um, I think the question is, is now many of these countries that had decided to, to quote um, Fleetwood Mac to go their own way, um, have now, you know, they now will actually have another alternative. And I think that's interesting. Um, you know, will... Um, Brazil now decided that it may perhaps casting its lot with a virtually mor- moribund Mercosur is not the best way to go. And now the U.S. has, um, and it's not, this is, it's not wielding a heavy, a, a large stick, um, it's not dictating how people should uh, manage their economies, it is offering an alternative that people can opt for or not. And I think that's important. I think the other thing that's important is, again, this isn't an anti-China agreement, um, but it does create a large market that I think may allow some of these countries to be able to develop the, the economy of scale to be able to compete in China, where many of them, including Brazil, um, are losing to China in the global market when it comes to manufacturing products. That said, I think we need to see the details. Um, I, I think of this as a as a net good, but I don't know uh, the details. In this case, uh, the devil, or at least the... the um, The deal is in the details.
0: Thanks so much. Chris Sabatini of Columbia University and the editor of the website Latin America Goes Global. Our guest today on Latin Pulse joining us via Skype from New York City. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Latin Pulse this week for our focus on trade, finance, and the debt crisis in Puerto Rico. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud you may write us via email you can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com that's latinpulse all one word at gmx.com if you're looking for earlier editions of latin pulse we're available in various locations on the web including itunes facebook and flipboard you can also find us in the brazilian online game mini mundos to see the latin pulse archives of video programs on latin america you can check out link tv's website www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Natalie Oninger and technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions.